Hallelujah. Good to be with you all on this wonderful, fine, slightly warm Sabbath day, Baruch Hashem, here in the great state of Tejas. The only thing that I would change about Texas is I, was ex- I would exchange the summer weather here for the summer weather in Canada. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Other than that, it's perfect. Baruch Hashem. Hallelujah. Well, let us say our baraka for the study of Torah today, and then we are going to get right to our, our, our lesson because uh, such so many good things. I say this every week, of course, but this is, week is no different. So many good things to glean from the study of God's Word every single week. Baruch Hashem. Blessed are you and our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offspring's offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. Baruch Hashem. Very exciting for all of the births and conceptions that are happening. And some of you ladies will find out in a few weeks that you're part of that list. Baruch Hashem. I look forward to those wonderful announcements as well. Hallelujah. We are a very prolific congregation. Hallelujah. Somebody said Arab Shabbat. Amen. That's amazing. Mitzvah. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, somebody says that sh- Judaism is uh, a burden. It's not. <laughs> it's all kosher. Hallelujah. <laughs> My wife is just blessing me over here. Hallelujah. Ha. <clears throat> ah. Anyway, Parashat Korach, hallelujah. What a, what a great, this, this is a, a great, a great uh, uh, Torah portion to have a Musar teaching. Musar meaning a teaching about ethics, uh, teaching about uh, character traits. And so this today is going to be a focus on Musar and how we can, how can av- we can avoid to be like Korach. Right, um, and what were some issues surrounding Korach? First and foremost, um, the community of Israel at this time has been on, under a lot of stress, a lot of strain, a lot of pressure. And uh, the last thing that's happened thus far is that the spies have gone into the land, and they've surveyed the land, and they decided that we cannot take the land, and so they decided that the best course of action is to discourage everybody from wanting to go into the land. Incidentally, the sages who are commenting about the spies and their motive uh, have various things to say, but one of the most prominent, the most common is that it wasn't so much that the spies had some type of evil intention necessarily. And, you know, isn't that true that so many times when we are trying to follow God and we go off the path, 
We don't necessarily have an evil intention that wells up inside us. Very often, we are, our motive is for, the, is for the best. You know, we're thinking, well, this is the best course of action. So, and therefore, but then we end up violating God's law, but our heart is right. And so we, we've talked a lot about that statement because that's very common. God knows my heart. He knows if my, if my intention was pure, then he's, gonna, he's just going to sign off. Well, I would just encourage you parents to think about your children. If your children violate your commandments and then they come back and say, yeah, but you know, my intention was great. Does that all make you, oh, oh, well, in that case, yeah, that's fantastic. Because you had the right intention, everything is fantastic. No, that's not how it works, right? Obviously, it isn't. But that's very often. So in the case of the spies, what happened with the spies is, is they, they went into the land, and they saw these giants. They saw these fortified cities. They realized that their military, uh, you know, they had muskets, and the enemy had, uh, you know, laser guns. And so they, they realized that, Look, this, this rabble that used to be uh, slaves are not going to be, be able to do this. Not to mention the fact that prior to the golden calf, everybody was great because they were strong and powerful and they had weapons with the divine name on them that were mighty and powerful to the pulling down of strongholds. That's from Jewish literature, by the way. But because of the golden calf, those weapons were taken away, which is why they're restored with Yeshua, right? That's why, why Shaul talks about that, that we have weapons that are mighty and powerful that are pulling down the strongholds. He didn't make that up. He said that that happened at the first Sinai, but that was when the, we had the sapphire tablets. After the sapphire tablets, we didn't have any more weapons, but now we have the sapphire tablets now. So, they, they had in their mind that, look, this is going to be impossible. So the best course of action is to go back and tell the nation, we can't do it. And besides, it's not that great of a place anyway. Really, our rent house back in Egypt was much larger. We had much better situation back there. So not only since we can't do it, you know what? It's not even worth it anyway, even if we thought we could do it. So let's just go back to Egypt. That's what they thought was the best course of action. And, and therefore, their testimony, that's why their testimony was so much an affront to God, because it wasn't about the land. It wasn't about the giants. Really, their testimony was a complete lack of amuna, a complete lack of faith. Well, we had the golden calf. We had uh, other issues that happened as well. Now we have this, and this, this all bubbles up into the, the bitter dispute from Korak. And as Rebetzin Youngris pointed out in her comments to this, that the, the, the group that came up against Moses and Aaron, they each had differing issues and they were, all the issues didn't necessarily coincide with one another. But they all had a common goal. And the common goal was to take it to, so to speak, or get back at Moses and Aaron. And so this maklokit, maklokit is, is uh, argument, confrontation, evil speech within the community bubbles up. This maklokit. And so ultimately at the root of the maklokit is what Rebetzin Youngris points out is, is two of the three worst 
character traits. Let's say, just say there are three character traits that will, that are terrible character traits that will lead to one's demise, absolutely. And, and two of the three were displayed here. The three character traits are jealousy, lust, and a thirst for honor. Jealousy, lust, and a thirst for honor. Isn't it interesting that these are the very same traits that Messiah Yeshua, uh, literally among others, but these specifically, literally confronts when he's talking, in, in, in particular, I'm, I'm referring to the Sermon on the Mount, which incidentally, the sages say that uh, when Messiah comes, he will teach us 30 new Torahs, Torah laws. Now, by that, they don't mean new Torahs, but like as if, you know, something we haven't heard before or something, but, or, or it differ from the present Torah. What is meant by that is that he will teach us 30 new levels of insight into the depths of Torah. And so uh, this is not scientific, but one time I went through the uh, Sermon on the Mount and I just did an account, accounting of every time he, he introduced a thought and it came out to about 30, 32-ish. Wow. You know, it's in, very interesting. I'm, you know, I'm not gonna build a synagogue on that, but it's, it's interesting. So Reverend Younger says that jealousy and thirst for honor in this case were the two character traits that were brought out by the dispute, by the Makloket. And so in this case, what Korach wanted was he ultimately wanted the crown of priesthood. Because all of these people who came up, they're, they're, one, one uh, commentator pointed out that they were, they were really mad about the idea that God, uh, allegedly Moses had said that God wanted to take the, the right of the firstborn and give it to the Levites. And specifically, the offering of sacrifices to Aaron and his sons. Korach, who himself was a firstborn, and these other leaders who were also firstborn sons, such as all the tribe, the tribal princes, said, you know what? This is not fair. This is not even from God. Right? Here we, here we are. First of all, this is our first, this is a Torah of man accusation. This is the laws of men. This is their first accusation. Moses, this is not God's law. Shalom. This is a law of man. And the thing is, you want the honor, Moses, because you want your brother to be the priest and not us. And we don't think that's from God. We think that's from your own selfish pride, your own selfish arrogance. And this coming from this, this accusation being made against the man who told God, if you don't forgive them, then wipe my name out. Please forgive them, but if you're not willing to forgive them, then I am willing to die in their place. And God says, no, that's all right. You're the, re the type of the, you're the shadow of the redeemer, but I have a redeemer who's going to do that. Your job is just to lead them in Torah. But there will come one after you who will die in their place. His name is Messiah Yeshua, by the way, in case you're wondering. So what the deal is, is that Korach wanted the crown of priesthood. And the reason was because he wanted the place of honor. He wanted the seat at the table. He wanted the head. He wanted to be greeted when he came in the room. He wanted that place of dignity and honor, which is precisely the Musar teaching that Yeshua gave was don't desire that. Don't desire that. If you're going to be a teacher, 
Ask yourself, why do I want to be a teacher? And if it's because you want the glory of being a teacher, then you should never be a teacher. But if your why is because you have a sincere desire to teach the things of God to all ages, whatever age group you're drawn to, that's a pure desire. And it doesn't matter if you're recognized for it at all. That's why if you're teaching and, and, and somebody is, uh, gives an insight, you should give them credit, Baruch Hashem. And not be afraid, by the way, to say, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll find out. Why? Because I, you, uh, you should not seek the honor. But here Korach sought the honor. He wanted the priesthood. But we've talked before about the three crowns of the tabernacle. There is the crown of kingship, which is the, the crown of, of the golden altar. Then there's the crown of priesthood, right? Which is the crown of the, uh, the table of showbread. But then there is the crown of Torah, which is the crown of the Ark of the Covenant. And what Korach didn't realize is that he was lusting. I, I, would, I would add lust, uh, right, to the list. He was jealous. He, he, he had a thirst for honor, and he was lusting after a position. But he was lusting after the crown. But what he didn't realize was if he took the crown of Torah, he got all three crowns. And some people, well, you know, how come I don't, you know, this happens to us a lot. We, we, we very often don't like the position we're in. If we're a leave, there's only three people in the covenant. There's only three, and this is an important thing. There are uh, uh, priests, Levites, and Israelites, right? So if you're an Israelite and you're not priest, then you feel slighted that you don't get to serve in, in the temple. Or, or maybe if you're a priest, you feel slighted because you're required to serve in the temple and you wish you didn't have to. Or if you're a Levite, you know, same thing. Well, how come I have to just carry everything and you get to worship God and get all the glory? Or maybe you're somebody else. Maybe you're a, a, a man and, and you're, you wish you didn't have to. Why do I have to? Why am I required to do certain things and my wife is not required? Or maybe if you're a woman, you say, well, how come I don't get to wrap the feeling and he does? And all these kind of, we never are satisfied. But the reality is what we don't understand is that if we will accept who we are in Mashiach, who we are in the covenant, that's accepting the Torah, then we get everything. We get it all. That's how we become priests and kings and Messiah is we get it all. And we say, well, I'm not. Somebody says, well, are you a Cohen? Well, well, yeah, kind of. I've got the crown. <laughs> but see, Korg didn't understand that. And as a result, he was just, and the reason was he wasn't really after the heart of God. He was after the praise and the glory of men. Which is what caused the death of Herod, right? People started praising him and worshiping him, and he was accepting their praise. And of course, he fell down dead and was eaten up with worms. Rashi says one of the biggest problems about Korach was that he had separated himself from the community. That's a big one. Separate yourself from the community. This is another Musar moment here. Because there are various personalities in the body, in the, in the, in the Guf HaMashiach. And so, Guf is body, the Guf HaMashiach. So there's various personalities. Some people are real outgoing and like in your face. They come in the, in the morning to the service like, hello, I am here. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> right? 
There are others who are more laid back and cool and calm and collected. Then there's others who are more introverts. But I want to speak to a moment, um, you know, to the one who's like, hello, I'm here. You probably need to tone it down, tap it down just a little bit, maybe a little bit. But I want to speak mostly to the introvert. Because here's the vicious cycle of the introvert. The introvert comes to the community and is so shy, so self-conscious, so concerned that they, they sit by themselves and, and, and what have you. And even sometimes when people invite them to, to come sit with us, they're like, oh, no, no, it's okay. And it starts a vicious cycle because as, as somebody who's really, really shy and enclosed, it, it doesn't lend itself to people wanting to engage them because they're trying to like, well, I don't, you know, I'm feeling, it's awkward. And then, then they start to feel disconnected. I know this is really hard for people with, it, with that particular personality, but I'm just going to encourage you. What you have to do is you have to kind of step outside your realm of comfort and make an effort to engage. And I, here's the deal. If you see people standing in a circle and they're talking, I promise you at Sar Shalom, when you step up to that circle and go, hey, everybody, they will expand the circle. Like, hey, come on in. And if they don't do that, you come see me. Okay? I promise you that's, what, that's what's going to happen. So <clears throat> Midrash, the, the Midrash Tankuma says, with soft words, he persuaded the elders, the leaders, and his neighbors. The problem is, is that as Rombel teaches, malcontents always, always, always want to try to take other people with them. Yes. Malcontents are never, being, never happy being malcontent by themselves. <laughs> and they will, they, will, they will make an effort to go around and talk to people. This is the problem that the sages say about Korak, because Korak was camped right next to Reuven. And so who did he, he brought in Reuven's leaders, right? Brought him in, talking to him, saying things. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't like to talk about stuff, but, you know. Well, there's a little thing going on around there, you know. I mean, and people listen to it. And listen, I've, I've, I've been doing this for a long time, and it's real easy when you hear somebody complaining about something. She said, he said, they said. It's a, it's, it's, and you say, oh, I cannot, but, and you're thinking to yourself, I can't, they talk to you like that? Just know. There's another side of that story. And a good judge, a, a, a good, a, a good judge, I got one, Amy. A, a, a good judge listens to the prosecutors as, okay, uh-huh, all right. And then turns to the defense, would you like to cross-examine? Yes. Don't ever make a, decision, make a judgment based on something you hear. Just somebody's complaining. Somebody's, we do it all the time. And listen, we're always going to make our case for ourselves the best case. Absolutely. There's always some, and besides that, it's none of your business anyway. Why? Just stay out of it. It's not about you. It's not about you. And I'll tell you something else. You know, this is something for you guys to know. The Beit Dean here is tight-lipped. Yes. And if we're dealing with a situation and you say, wow, so-and-so, I don't know what's going on with so-and-so. Nobody said anything. We haven't said anything on purpose. If we need to say something, we'll tell you. Otherwise, you know, if you weren't called to the meeting, then it's not about you. And you should just carry on doing what you're doing, right? Baruch Hashem. And you don't want to be called to the meeting anyway, right? Yeah, that's like, no, I do not want to be... I do, not, I do not want that invitation in the mail. Man. So listen, the, Shaul, Shaul said in his letter to, to his congregation at Corinth, he said, 
Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals, which is another teachable moment. You need to get around people who are, who are quality people and let those be your close friends. Now, we all have friends who, you know, they're, they're not Jews, some, may, some of whom are neighbors, uh, co-workers, you know, may not, uh, may not be the best uh, person. And you can have a, you can, it is possible to have a positive impact on their life, but don't make them your good friends. Right. Don't, 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 that's not the person you hang out with all the time. You need to seek out people that have a like, like, like mine. They have a, they have a, a, a same values. Uh, as you do, because otherwise what's going to happen is if those become your good friends, then you will become like them. Bad company ruins good morals. Rabbi Asher Wise says, when a community allows the flames of Makloket to rage in its midst, the guilty and the innocent suffer together, men, women, and even helpless babies. Even helpless babies. You love the children? then we need to make sure that we, we, we go out of our way to stop any makloken. And by, by the way, it begins with us, right? Uh, and, and so many times, by the way, uh, Korok, this whole situation with Korok could have so been easily resolved if Korok had just gone privately to Moses and maybe Aaron too and said, hey, cousins, I've, I've got something I just eaten me up. I need to talk to you about it and say, well, what's wrong? Well, man, I just, just seems like it's not fair. I want to be a priest and see, I don't, can you explain to me why he gets it and we don't? And shouldn't they, you know what that would have probably would have happened? Aaron and Moses would have said, well, I'll tell you what, let's go to the tabernacle. Let's talk to Hashem. Let's go talk to his image. Yeshua. Yeshua manifests right there in front of him and say, hey, you know, and the brother has a, he's there humble. I just, I just want to serve you. I just, I just really want to serve. And I don't understand how I'm going to get to you. And Yeshua, who knows? See, see, let me tell you what happened. What could have happened. I'm not saying it would have happened. I'm saying what could have, he could have happened. Yeshua, or excuse me, the manifestation of Hashem could have looked at, <laughs> could have looked at Korak and saw his heart and said, I tell you what, Korak, like, like Pincus, you'll be a priest forever. Because of your heart. You know what I'm saying? That's, that kind of stuff could have happened with the right spirit. Or at the very least, he could have been comforted and made to feel valuable in his role. But the point is, it could have all been resolved. And he'd have just gone to him and said, hey, man. You know, you go to somebody and say, I just, I know it's probably not true, but I heard that you said this. And I just don't, they said, you didn't say, you, did you? Or you go to somebody and say, hey, I said Shabbat Shalom to you in the hallway, and you walk straight past me and didn't say nothing. It hurt my feelings. And it, and it, it bothered me. And the person says, you were standing there? I'm so sorry. Man, I just got a phone call that my cousin had cancer, and I just was thinking about that this morning. And I didn't even see you when you I'm so sorry. See? But instead, of, but instead what oftentimes happens, we go around the entire shul. Well, I don't know what's up with him this morning. Boy, he, he didn't say nothing to me. You know, yeah, he never talks to me either. Well, he, he's mean, isn't he? Yes, he is. We can get him out of here. Vote him off the island. <laughs> He shouldn't be here anyway. And next thing you know, the shul has five people in it. And then four, and then three, and then two. Then the rabbi's gone. Everybody's gone but that one. And that's a perfect shul right there. You can be the high priest, the cantor, the goodbye, the worship leader, the drummer, the sound guy. You can be everybody all by yourself. 
The Lukite Torah, the Arizal, writes in his comments that Makloket drives away Hashem's mercy and invites Hashem's strict judgment. It, listen, everything I'm telling you today is I'm, I'm talking to myself, I'm talking to all of us. None of this is easy to do. It's all hard. It's all difficult because of our human condition. But let me just tell you that it is so important to judge favorably and to not make judgments and just try to step back and go, man, you know, okay. Because the moment that we in, invoke Makloket, we invite God's strict judgment. And this is what, exactly what Yeshua taught. He says, judge not, lest you be judged. The minute we start condemning our neighbor, talking about their bad habits or what they did or didn't do or whatever halakha they, not, they are or not following, then what's going to happen is the, the halakha inspector is going to show up at your door. Oh, <laughs> I... I Good morning. Um, I was told that you were calling people out on Halakha, right? Yes, I was. Oh, good, because I'm here to inspect your house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm. Let's start with your front door. We're going to measure it to see if that mezuzah is in the halakhically right spot. Is it tilted in the right direction? And by the way, is the, is the, is the, is the parchment inside kosher? We're starting right there. I haven't even entered the house yet. Right? Come on. Be merciful as he is merciful, right? I mean... Listen, there's not one of us in this room watching or in any Jewish community anywhere who's perfect. You heard of the Shulchan Aruch? Nobody follows it. I'm sorry, was that a pin dropping? <laughs> there's not a Jew on the planet that follows all the Shulchan Aruch. Not one on the planet anywhere. And don't you believe for a second that even the greatest exotics you've ever lived have followed all of it. Can I just drop a hammer on that right quick, just so you're clear? If, if a Jewish person, listen, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not condemning. I'm just, I'm just simply clarifying. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. Just trying to clarify, because I don't want people to feel condemned, because that's the point I'm getting to. If you're Jewish, or if somebody's Jewish, and they listen to music during the week, but they don't listen on Shabbat, they've just violated the Shulchan Aruch. That's simple. That's right there. Just any, and you're like, well, every Jew does that. Exactly. There's so much more, but that's just a simple one. If you're listening to the radio, if you're listening to Eitan Katz in your car on Tuesday morning, and then you don't listen to music on Shabbat, you've just violated the Shulchan Aruch. What do you mean by that? Because the Shulchan Aruch says no music ever, anytime, no matter what. Ever. Ever. Ever is an English word <laughs> that means that you should never do something. At any time. For any reason. And, and by the way, you say, well, they have music, these Jewish weddings, there's music and dancing and, you know, the, hey, the, hey, you know, but, you know, there's wine there. There's another, there's another teaching in the Shulchan Aruch that says anytime you have wine at a festival, you certainly can't have music. Wow. 
Be- why? Why, Rabbi? Why does it say that? Because of the destruction of the temple. That's all I'm saying. Now, this is why when people say, well, y'all have music on Shabbat too, and that's a violation of Shulchan Aruch. It's like, really? Let me show up at your house. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I'm here. I want you to know I'm, I'm Rabbi Halakha. And this is the accuser, and this is the angel of death, and we've come here to explain your... The Sutton is on his way. In fact, he sent us. You say, Rabbi, what are you talking about? Say, this, everything I'm telling you is in Jewish thought. All of it. All of it. All right. Sifra Nash 42 says, great is peace and detestable. Let me read this again. Great is shalom and detestable is makloket. This is why the sages teach that we should be like the disciples of Aaron, going out of our way to make peace. Going out of our way to make peace. Even at the sacrifice of our own reputations. And listen, I'm telling you something. Every one of us are guilty of makloket. Every one of us. All of us are guilty at taking offense. All of us are guilty at judging. We're all guilty. Don't, this is not about your neighbor. Stop looking at them. Wives, it's not about your husbands. Just, there's, there should be a barrier right here because, yeah. so, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, today, so, you, so you're not looking over here. It's about us. So you look at ourselves in the proverbial mirror and say, it's about us. We're dealing with our own life. This is about us improving ourselves today and using Korak as an example. And by the way, Samuel is a descendant of Korach. And so here we have Samuel, who's actually made teshuva for his lineage because he told Israel, man, why do y'all want another king? God is your king. Whereas his ancestor wanted that crown. Samuel says, I don't want the crown. He's got the crown. Why do I want his crown? What am I going to do? Take it from him? (laughs) Here's just a couple of Musar points, just before we move on um, into uh, a deeper view of this. In the uh, Sefer Hayashar, in chapter um, 18, there's some writings here. This is a Musar work. It's concerning the difference between a righteous man and the wicked one. I thought it would be good to review what the difference is. What are some practical differences between someone who's wicked and someone who's righteous? So it says here, If there should come upon a wicked man a new situation or business through which he may be deceived, he forgets his God. And if he was accustomed to pray, he neglects his prayer. If he had been accustomed to help the poor, he forgets them. If it was his custom to study the precepts of the Torah of God, he forgets to do that too. In other words, if something interrupts his day, he just forgets everything. But uh, if a new situation or a new business comes upon a righteous man, he does not let his hands slacken from the service of God. The important matters do not trouble him, nor do the new situations, nor the mistakes. In other words, for the righteous man, he just keep, he's always the same. There is something to be said, by the way, for consistency. For consistency, just being consistent, 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 consistent. People come in to this uh, congregation and this movement, and everybody's on different levels. And, and sometimes that's intimidating to people. People come in and they don't know anything about anything, but they're drawn here and that's wonderful. And they start doing a little bit. They start lighting candles on Shabbat and they, they, they start, um, you know, trying to eat kosher or whatever, whatever it is. 
and they see somebody else who's super Jew in the, in the community and they get bothered by that. And the worst thing they can do, that the worst thing that person can do is try to become super Jew overnight. That's the worst thing. Because the person that you're looking at and you admire who's super Jew didn't get there overnight. But you continue down. There's a thing about consistency. Just be consistent. Like I told somebody the other day, pick, uh, pick a mitzvah and become an expert on that mitzvah. Just become an expert on it. Not that you want to be proud about it, but in your own heart, you're working on that. And when you feel like you've you've got that down, then move to the next mitzvah and be consistent. Just keep going, keep going on the same trajectory because none of us got here overnight and none of us got here even in a year necessarily. Some of us took years to get here. And we'll talk about that in a second. But if bad happenings come upon a wicked man or he or she is taken captive or he is in prison or they afflict him or they steal severely from him, he gets angry with God. And he says, my death is better than my life. Behold how my bad luck is compared to that of my companions. For they live in tranquility and the wrath of God is upon me. He blames God. Bad things are happening to him. God, why are you always picking on me? Why is this always happening to happen to me? What, how can you let them prosper and I don't get to prosper? All this kind of stuff, right? But when troubles, distress, and distress come upon a righteous man, he says, my sins have brought these things about, and all this came about through my own hand. And I did it, and I must bear it, and I'm obliged to accept all of this. The Creator has not done me evil, far be it from God to do wicked, wickedly, but I have done evil to myself. See, the righteous man takes all the credit for the, for the wrong that happens to him, and he, he accepts it, as God's way of correction. He says, he says, who knows if the creator is not admonishing me because of his great pity for me, or if these troubles are not for my own good, or to atone for my own sin through them, or in order that there should be, uh, uh, be no time for me to occupy myself with evil. Think about that. How a righteous man thinks. Well, maybe I'm sick because God doesn't want me to become evil. Maybe, I'm, maybe I can't go on that that trip or whatever, because I'm preoccupied. God's had some issue come up in my life, but that's because he didn't want me to get on the car road and have an accident. He, in other words, he's sheltering me. He's, he's protecting me. But, but we don't blame God. We give God the glory and the honor and good and bad. That's what a righteous man does. When the wicked man is delivered from his troubles and goes forth to prosperity and comfort, then he removes his fear and says in his heart, now I will be able to complete every business which I began and I now will be able to enjoy myself in proportion to the way I labored. And I will make this an occasion of great rejoicing and festival because I have escaped and I will give myself all the pleasure that I can. Whereas the righteous man, when he goes forth from trouble into a life of comfort and deliverance, he gives thanks to God. And he says in heart, why should I believe that other troubles will not come upon me? Shall it be because of my great righteousness and my piety? Who knows if I didn't escape from this trouble in the order to do good deeds or to add transgressions to my sin? In what way have I merited to find favor in the eyes of the Lord? Behold, great troubles happened to kings. And how did I escape? And why was I saved? In other words, he gives glory to God and he never for one moment thinks that the reason he's been rescued is because he's some pious Zodic. But rather, he gives it, there's a word for this, it escapes me, it's grace. That's the word. 
By grace I've been saved, not of myself. Right? That's what he just got through saying. By grace I've been saved. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest I should boast. You see, this all is in perfect concert with what God expects of us as Jews. No Jew, no true Jew, let me put it that way. No true Jew thinks that his salvation comes because of his great merit. Because we all know as Jews that our, our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. That's what it says in the prophets. The wicked man is delivered from, from severe sickness. He hurries to do business and to build a house and to take delight in his women and to renew his lovely garments and join his companions and so on. But when the righteous man is healed, he continues to do deeds of loving kindness, to help the poor and to be humble before God and to multiply prayer to petition and to keep his vows and to improve his ways and his deeds. In other words, when we, we go from bad times to good times, we don't forget God and we don't forget to give him thanks and we don't change the way we do. If anything, we improve what we're doing for God. But if the wicked man does justice to the poor, his importance grows in his own eyes and he boasts about it to all of his associates and he thinks that there's no one like him in his generation. If he's saved from trouble, he thinks that he was spared because of his righteousness. As for the righteous man, his deeds are nothing in his eyes and he conceals his righteousness from men and he does not praise himself with them and he feels despised in his own eyes. And if he is saved from trouble, he says that, that it was through the kindness of God that he escaped and not through his own righteousness. You know, I want to mention about that despise in his own eyes. You know, I mentioned earlier that people feel self-conscious. They can look at somebody in the congregation and they can feel disheartened. You know, there is an element of that which is good. First of all, this is why community is so important. We should allow people to inspire us. I'll, I don't, I'll, I'll be quite frank with you. There's people in this congregation who through the years and up, even up into this day who regularly inspire me. There's people that, that do things. They discover new insights in the Torah, new halakot in the Torah, and it inspires me. There's things that happen. We should be inspired. We should look to our brother or our sister as a type of mentor if they're, if they're more senior to us or whatever, and, and, and aspire to that and it should motivate us and encourage. We, and even if we're at a, a quote-unquote super Jew level, or we think we are, we should never think that. We should always look at ourselves in the mirror and say, you know, you can do better. Right. Every, every one of us, this is why my wife and I and my family, we always, after every festival, we always have a, a type of informal debrief where we talk about how we could do that ne next year so much better. And we should always be inspiring and never think that we've ever arrived. Having said that, you want to be careful that, that despising yourself doesn't become uh, a mental illness. That you don't, you're not so lowly in your own eyes that you can't ever inspire. The whole thing about looking up to people and, and using them as, as, as a motivator is that you, you, you actually step up. And the thing is, is everyone, of, everyone who's hearing my voice today and everyone who will hear it in the future, everybody has the power and the potential to take hold of the crown of Torah. This is why the Torah was given in the wilderness, so that no one could lay claim to it. It was in a no man's land so that it could be for every man. 
so everybody can take hold of it. This is why Yeshua invites everybody. This is why he talked to the woman at the well who was a Samaritan, who back in that day, the Samaritans were considered the worst of the worst. The worst of the worst. They were the MS-13. Now, they weren't doing murderers and stuff like that, but I'm just saying, if you think about the worst of the worst, they say Jews really disliked Gentiles. They really hated Samaritans. And so he invited them in. You know, this reminds me of something that is little known in world history or American history, that during the time of the Civil War, the worst class in America was not the slave class. The worst class in America was the Irish. Everybody thought the Irish were as low as you could get on the human totem pole. Interestingly, I was in Jerusalem back in 2010-ish, something like that, and uh, I was minding my own business, standing near the car, though, and I felt a tap on my shoulder, and I turned around. There's a Orthodox Jew standing there with a red beard, and he says, do you have any money for yeshiva? <laughs> and I thought, Wow. <laughs> I've just found a Jewish leprechaun. <laughs> Turns out this young man was asking me for tzedakah for yeshiva, um, and he was a convert from Ireland and had been a, a Catholic and had become aware of the, the immense idolatry that exists in that world and decided that he wanted to serve the one true God. But I say that as an example of Somebody that, back, not an hour day, but, you know, 150 years ago, was considered the worst of the worst. And now he himself has taken hold of the crown of Torah and has become um, with the best of the best. Baruch Hashem. Bami Bar 17, 6 through 13. Let's look at Bami Bar 17. That's number 17, <clears throat> beginning in verse uh, 6. Now we see the heart of Moses as the leader here. He says, The entire assembly of the children of Israel complained on the morrow against Moses. And Aaron says, saying, You have killed the people of Adonai. I mean, I want you to imagine Moses. He, had, he just woke up one day. He was having a cup of coffee and he got assaulted by all the leaders in the community. And then God said, I'm going to kill him. And so God killed him. And so Moses hasn't even finished his cup of coffee, and they're saying, you killed everybody. I mean, this guy has the worst rabbinical job in history. <laughs> You've killed the people of Adonai. And it was when the assembly gathered against Moses and Aaron, they turned to the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud of glory had covered it. Oh, no. They, they got an invitation in the mail. And the glory of Adonai appeared, and Moses and Aaron came before the tent of meeting. And Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Remove yourself from among this assembly, and I shall destroy them in an instant. And they fell on their faces. You know, so many of us would have said, oh, Okay. <laughs> Fire in the hole. <laughs> I mean, that's what a lot of us would have done, right? But no, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, 
Take the fire pan and put fire in it from among the altar and place incense and go quickly to the assembly and provide atonement for them. For the fury of God goes out from the presence of Adonai and the plague has begun. I mean, here is Moses. He's just been assaulted. He's been defamed. And now the people are like, look, you killed Korok and all. You, you killed them. You killed the people of God. They weren't even, you understand that they weren't convinced yet that, and Moses, instead of taking personal offense and go, you know what, guys? <laughs> My wife is in Midian right now. I, I mean, I, I sent my wife to Midian so I could shepherd you people all over this wilderness. I'm done. I'm going, I'm going to have a cup of soup. My wife said, you know. But no, they're like, he's like, no, God, please spare him. The love of Moses, the love of the shepherd was so intense. And of course, we know that Moses is a type and a shadow of the Mashiach, of the Redeemer who would come. If Moses' love was that strong, how much more love did Yeshua have for us? I've shared before from the Messiah text where Yeshua was asked, or the Messiah says in the Midrash was asked, by God, are you willing to take all this suffering upon yourself? It's going to be horrible. And he said, not only am I willing, but I do it joyfully, but only under one condition, that not just this generation should be saved, but all generations, past, present, and future, to include the, the babies who died in stillbirth. In other words, Yeshua had a... Uh, a, a lust, if you will, but it was in the positive for he wanted all the souls and he was willing to do whatever it took to make that happen. And sometimes when we get far along in our relationship with a God, we forget the immense mercy that Hashem has had for us. And many of us who are here today and we're blessed to know so much, I mean, if you, you know, if you really think, about, I know y'all know this already, but People in this room, I mean, it's incredible what you know and what people out there have no idea that they know and wish they knew and don't know that they wish they knew it. <laughs> I mean, really, if you think about the diamonds that you're carrying around. And sometimes we, you know, when you're just surrounded by diamonds and gold and silver, it becomes like Solomon's kingdom. You pile it outside the city gate because you have so much of it that's piled out up there. And, and somebody walks by who's poor as dirt and looks at that and goes, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> and we forget of God's grace and mercy that led us here. Yes. And so it's a reminder to us, think about these, the people that we have in our world. It's so much harder today to win somebody to the true Messiah than it was back in antiquity. Because back in antiquity, you had Judaism and you had paganism, and that was it. Today, you've got Christian polemics that teach everything that we're teaching today, week in and week out, they teach that the exact opposite. Since the 1300s, the church has persecuted Jewish literature and demonized the Talmud and demonized the Midrash. This is why when you talk to a Messianic, or you talk to a Christian and you mention the word Talmud, you might as well just said tarot cards. Because it's been demonized. Anti-Semitism has never been stronger than it is today. Because through people's conditioning, through generations of conditioning, 
People have been taught that the enemy of Christ is the Jew. And so when you're encouraging people to become Jewish, you're just saying, become the antithesis, the enemy of your Messiah. I'll never forget years ago, I had a good close friend of mine who walked into my house. It'd been many, 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 many years ago, way before we began this or even heritage. Came into my house and he looked around and he was kind of standing in the foyer, stunned. And he noticed all of the paraphernalia in the house, you know, the mezuzah, all the, everything, right? And uh, he goes, I thought, I thought you were, I thought you were like a Christian, like you believed in the Messiah. And I said, I do. And he looked around the house and he's looking at the stars of David and everything. He says, but, but the Jews killed Christ. So the point is that this, from this point, this man's point of view, he, he, he's, just, he's just been conditioned in a Christian church all of his life to know that that symbol, that that lampstand, that that mezuzah represents everything that's the opposite of God's will. It's the synagogue of Satan. And then, then a couple on top of that, you just have the natural carnal life where you have driving down the road, you have national bacon week. They have bacon Sundays now. They didn't have that when I was growing up. Did they, Dad? I don't remember. I never recall that. <laughs> they didn't have that. They have all these stuff. And so you have, now you're telling people that, that to resist that, all those carnal things that, that people are, you have all, the point is that there's all these different things hitting people. And therefore, I want to tell you something. It is a miracle from God a miracle from God. And heaven rejoices, and we should too, when a first-time guest walks through the doors. Because that person has overcome all kinds of persecution, inner struggles, overcome all kinds of mental battles, theological oppressions, people they respect, pastors, elders, leaders, teachers, telling them you're going to go to hell if you eat kosher. You have people telling them that the Jews are wicked and evil. You have people telling them, listen, why do you want to eat kosher? It's a mitzvah to eat bacon. You have people that tell them. So when they walk through our doors, we should be so honored and so thrilled and so excited that they're here. It's a miracle. Anything beyond that is like blown away. Some lady who walks through the door and now she wants to light candles. She's just come from church world. Are you kidding me? This is amazing. (sighs) Nuclear bomb just went off. Somebody says, hey, I'm just curious. You know, somebody sent me a text the other day. My wife and I, this lady sent me a text. Hey, you know, I just finally really want to bear down. Where can I buy a kosher meal? Are you kidding me? Threw my phone across the room. (laughs) Christian lady, you kidding me? She's overcome that Jesus made all foods clean. That's huge. Huge. We forget because sometimes we've been here so long, we forget the journey. We forget. And our people are forgotten. That's why Jews are no longer a light to the nations. We're not. Let me tell you a story. There's so much I want to share, but I, I want to hit some points here. By the way, 
They, they, there's a whole thing that Rabbi Asher Wise writes about Ketorot and its power. And this is why Moses said, take the incense and, and stop the plague because Ketorot itself has power, this, this supernatural Ketorot. But Ketorot is our prayer. This is why I want to encourage all of us to be, be praying sincerely and heartfelt for our community and for our neighborhoods. And ask God, I want to ask you, I'm going, to, I'm going to be doing this, and I have been doing it already, but I want to ask you to, to join me in this. Ask God to break your heart for the community. Ask God to break your heart for the community. And listen, I understand some of us, you know, it's not easy because we, we deal with anti-Semitism, and it's, it's no coincidence that just this morning, I, 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 I grabbed my tablet. Of course, it was still connected to the internet because I hadn't put on, on airplane mode. I grabbed my tablet and there was a, a comment somebody had made on our YouTube, very anti-Semitic, very anti-Semitic. I deleted it. I went ahead and deleted it. We don't need that on there. Very anti-Semitic comment. But here's the deal. I said, Hashem did that on purpose. Because he's like, okay, so I want to know, if you see this, will you still have compassion for this guy? Will your, will your heart still break for him? Because you know the honest to God truth is, I used to be like that. There was a time in my life, I'm not proud of it, I used to make fun of Jews. Can you believe that? It's crazy. It's true. Used to make fun. Used to make fun of preachers, too. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. I'm not making that up. That's truth. But look, what we have to understand is, is that we're no longer a light to the world. Because we've become insular, we've allowed this harsh, bitter life in the wilderness to insulate us. And now we're just for ourselves. In the Jewish world, they say, well, we're just trying to get, reach Jews. I'm like, well, that, see, here's the problem. That's not our mandate. Our mandate from God is to reach the world. He didn't say be a light to Jews. He said be a light to the nations. And that's the truth. My neighbor is a police officer. And he's told me this story twice, which indicates that it really has impacted him. And he always follows it up, and, I'm, and I thank God with, you're not like that, but, which is good. <laughs> but he, he said to me, he's a police officer, and he, he said that one time he, got on, he was on a call, and it so happened that this elderly Jewish woman's husband had passed away. And the reason she called the police was, it was A, it was sudden, and B, um, he apparently had, had a heart attack. He was very elderly, and he had a heart attack and fell off the bed. So when he, he said, when I arrived, she was frantic, and she said that the rabbi is on his way, and as a dignity to her husband, she was trying to get him back onto the bed. But he's too, she's very elderly and frail, and she couldn't do it. So he said, normally, as a police officer, we're not supposed to do that kind of thing, but I had compassion, and so I picked him up and put him on the bed. The rabbi came. They exchanged, you know, greetings and whatever, and the rest is history. Sometime later, this officer was called to be security at this synagogue where the rabbi was the leader. So he's there in the hallway as a police officer, and he sees the rabbi coming down the hallway. And he says to the rabbi as he's walking up, he goes, oh, good morning, rabbi. Um, you may not remember me, but you, you and I met um, just not too long ago at that incident. He named the person. I was there. You and I have met. 
And he said, the rabbi did this. He walked by and he looked at him and goes, maybe we've met, maybe we haven't. Walked right past. Now, I don't know what was going on, why the rabbi would act that way. I will tell you that as a rabbi, we have a higher calling, so we're not allowed to, we need to stop and that's a re, no, no matter what's going on, having a bad morning, have a bad day, whatever, you need to stop. But here's the problem. It left an impression with my neighbor of what Jews were like, and he never again even considered going to a synagogue, not even to do security. And he said, now you, now you guys live next door to me, and it's kind of nice to, uh, you know, find it. And so we have a good relationship and good rapport, but that's the issue. So the question for us, as we're coming to the end here, is what kind of community are we going to be? Are we going to be a Korok community? Or are we going to be a community of, of people who are loving and kind? And this is what I want to, <clears throat> I want to foster a community of warm, loving, kind people who are compassionate who, who sincerely want others to have the pocket of diamonds that they have, who want others to experience the peace and, and the shalom. I don't want to be like the uh, ultra-Orthodox community that's been, that's been talked about recently on, a, on a, a special Fox News report that is completely separate and completely insular. And basically, you're not welcome there. I want to be a place where everybody is welcome to come to Sar Shalom. Everybody's welcome to come. You can come, you can learn, you can grow, you can experience. You know, there's no uh, issues about, well, whether or not you, you meet some qualification before you walk the door. Because of all the things that I've talked about and how difficult it is for people who, to even come here, so, so as, we're, as we're concluding, I just want to bring up something that is talked about in, in the book of Hosea, chapter 6 and verse 6. Let me just read this because I talked about it last week briefly, but I want to highlight a couple of points. Hosea, chapter 6 and verse 6 says, Therefore, I, excuse me, it says, For I desire kindness, say kindness. I desire kindness and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burn offerings. This verse does not mean that God doesn't want Torah. But what it means is if you have Torah, which is like sacrifice and burn offering, but you don't have kindness, you have nothing. And God credits it as such. Mayam Loez, commenting on this, says, For I desire kindness and not sacrifice. According to the sages, he writes, God tells the Jewish people, Precious to me is the kindness you tender to one another, more than all the offerings that Solomon sacrificed before me. And that is so, even though it says, A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon the altar. 1 Kings 3, 4. God says, I would rather have you be kind-hearted than be somebody who is super halakhically straight. 
I'd rather you move your candles accidentally on Shabbat than to have you be somebody who's mean-spirited. You wrapped a feeling, but you're not kind? Stop it. You keep Shabbos, but you're not a kind person? You look down on people? You might as well go out and have a cheeseburger on Shabbat. Because your thousand offerings you're making, I look at it like your offerings. They're not my offerings. Because you're not kind. Mayam Lewis says, A knowledge of God means a knowledge of the Torah. As the sages taught, similar David said, For you do not delight in sacrifices, or else I would give it. You do not desire burnt offering. The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51, 18-19. Hence it says here, For I desire kindness, Mayam Lewis says, and not sacrifice. And it says, The world is built on loving kindness. Psalm 89.3. God says, Precious to me is the kindness that you extend to one another. Thus it says, this is the instruction, the Torah of the burnt offering, of the meal offering, Leviticus 7.37. He writes, quote, this is the instruction, refers to the teaching of the Torah. You will love your fellow as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. In other words, Mayam Loez concedes that, that the, 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 the instruction of the Torah is being loving and kind to your neighbor. This is everything that Korach was not. It goes on to say in, uh, in another commentary, in the Art Scroll commentary on this passage, it says, for this was the very message, they write, of all the prophets who were murdered. The prophets were essentially teaching that your sacrifice is not any good unless you love me and love people. And wasn't this also what Yeshua was killed for? Yeah. The very same topic? So Micah 6, 6 through 8 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. He's told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I want this synagogue and all of us, myself included, to be people of immense kindness and, and to be people of, of impeccable humility who are pursuing Torah life with our whole heart and realizing that everything we do, it's only because God's tender mercy and grace has allowed us to do it. And by that, may God cause these diamonds to be given to so many more who would come to this synagogue. What do we know? What do we know?